This morning, we're going to be continuing our readings and our study of Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now, well, yeah, just by way of an introduction, if I was to introduce Paul to you as an international man of mystery, you might, uh, you might have to flick forward to it. You might have this image uh, come up. <laughs> it's not the, the kind of typical picture or image you might have, Paul. It's more likely to be the next one. That's Rembrandt's impression of uh, Paul. Maybe it's a wee bit too serious. Maybe we're going to be a bit too harsh on Paul. But often when we think of Paul, we often think of someone who's quite stern and quite serious and, you know, and quite reserved. But I want you to think on Paul particularly this morning. I mean, obviously, we're going to be reading his letter to the Ephesians. But think on Paul. He was in a sense, an international man of mystery, but not in the modern sense of espionage or spies or even something weird and unknowable. He was international in the sense that he had a commission. It was his commission, it was his mission in life to go to the far reaches of the world where purpose, a commitment to reveal a mystery that had been hidden for so long, but now was the time it had to be spoken, it had to be heralded, and he was the one who was like the first of his kind in many ways. He was an international man of mystery, a mystery being revealed. So with that, we're going to turn to chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 13. If you've got one of these, in fact, my Bible is slightly different from yours, so there's no point in reading out the page number. (laughs) But it's uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to to 13, and it's going to come up on screen as well. So, So let's read. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged, because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
Amen. So there are three things I want to highlight through the reading of this passage this morning. First and foremost, that we, like Paul, are prisoners of Christ. We are the mystery of Christ. And we're also, in a sense, the life work of Christ as well. They say, if it's true for Paul, it's true for us. We are prisoners of Christ. It's a funny, strange term to use, isn't it? Prisoners of Christ. You know, if we didn't know already, Paul's immediate audience, uh, recipients of this letter, are Gentiles, non-Jews. As you've seen the church, and the church is still fairly new. It's beginning to press against the boundaries of Jerusalem, and it's beginning to spill out. And it's reaching to the far-flung reaches of the Roman Empire. Gentiles are hearing the news about Jesus, and they're responding, and they're coming into what this seems to be a Jewish thing. And they're left scratching their heads, thinking, is there really room for us? Is this a very Jewish thing? Is there space for us? Is there really a space for us? Remember, Jesus himself said in John uh, chapter 4, 22, for salvation is from the Jews. Well, Paul wants to explain to them, yet yes, definitely, this is for you. And it comes by way of this revelation, this mystery that they're being called into. And he begins it by saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ for you. Now, when somebody normally says something like to you, it's often said with a grumble or a complaint. You know, I'm in this place because of you. (laughs) I remember hearing somebody this week say something similar to that. (laughs) It's your fault. (laughs) I won't name names. (laughs) I'll tell you later. It wasn't me. But the funny thing is, Paul isn't doesn't have that sense of tone to it. He's saying it with a sense of love and joy and celebration. I am in this position because of Christ, but because of you. It's because of love. It's a bond of love. It's a sense of commitment. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I'm doing this for the love of Christ and for you, and I'm a prisoner to it, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. When Paul's saying this, he's saying a lot of things, but it's all good stuff. And it's all meant for encouragement to these people who have received this letter. You know, it might be helpful if you imagine that Paul only wrote this just a couple of weeks ago. He's still around. And he sent it just a couple of weeks ago and he sent it to us here this morning. Most of us, I think, here this morning, I could describe as Gentile. I'm not familiar that any of you have a Jewish background. So we'll go on that. That we share a commonality with the people who received this letter in the first instance. Paul is writing to us here this morning. He just sent it a couple of weeks ago. We know what the post is like. It just arrived this morning. (laughs) Okay? And he's writing to you. He's writing to us. And the thing is, this is where you've got to consider who Paul is, where he came from. This is a, a, an ardent Jewish nationalist. His whole makeup, he's Jewish to the core. A fundamentalist, if you like. An exclusive 
But yet he's writing to us this morning. And he's saying, you know what? This is for you as well. I don't know why the people when they first received this from Paul were like, is this really from the guy I heard about him? And he's writing to us. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. The very reason that Paul is languishing in chains is because of his commitment to Christ, but because of his commitment to us. He's committed to us, to us here this morning. He's got a heart for us. It's amazing, isn't it? That when you think on that, you know, I know 2,000 years or so separate us, but doesn't your heart go out to him? He was a man who, from a former life, has completely been transformed by the Spirit of God in him. And who were formerly his enemies, he's now suffering on our behalf by a deep commitment, compassion towards us. He loves us. He loves us. You see, Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write this letter for our benefit. Paul was compelled by the Spirit of Christ to stand on the temple steps some 2,000 years ago and to give a bold and dangerous message. You can read about it in Acts 22, where Paul stood there on the temple steps to an exclusive Jewish crowd, and he dared to utter a singular word. They, they originally they accosted him because he had been wrongly accused that he'd smuggled Gentiles into the temple area. And if you'd heard uh, Don speaking last week, you know that was a no-go zone for the Gentiles. It was an anathema, you know, they were an abomination. They shouldn't be anywhere near certain areas of the, the temple. Paul hadn't done that. But he took the occasions to speak to them. And he took that occasion to tell them his testimony of what God had done in him. And one minute they were rabble aiming for his life, but then he managed to calm them and he told them his testimony. And you know, he had them in the palm of his hand. They were spellbound as they listened to the wonderful thing that God had done in his life. But as he came to the end of what he was saying, he said, and God, and Jesus said to me, go, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. And when he said that, everything went to pot. <laughs> the crowd became the, were maddened by it. They couldn't accept it. They asked, they said, you should be wiped from the face of that earth. He's to be stoned, he's to be killed. And he was only saved by a Roman centurion who took him into custody. And it was from then on that he found himself a prisoner in chains and also gave him the occasion to write this letter to us this morning. Paul was a prisoner of Christ, bound to Christ, bound to do whatever the Lord asked of him. He couldn't do anything else. He was compelled by the love of Christ, but maybe unexpectedly, a love for the Gentiles as well. They never had before. They never even ever occurred to him before. He was now committed to this vast 
group of people who had always been held at arm's reach as far as anything of the promises of God were concerned. You know, when we think about what it is to be free in Christ, sometimes people have this strange idea that it means we have free license to do whatever we like. It's not. It means that he has free license to do whatever he likes in us and through us. And we respond. There are only two kingdoms in this universe. The kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. We in our former lives were prisoners held captive by the kingdom of darkness. As we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, everything that we were had the stench of death around it. Christ rescued us from that and transferred us into his kingdom of light. Just as we were compelled by our former kingdom, by our former ruler, to do the things of the flesh, and we found ourselves doing the things we didn't want to do, and we couldn't do the things we did want to do, we find ourselves in the kingdom of light, compelled to do the things that Christ wants us to do. And it's a wonderful thing. It's all about life. And Paul has found himself part of this great mystery. He's commissioned to preach this great mystery of God. The unity that should now be formed that Christ has drawn all things together in himself, both Jew and Gentile. Everything coming together as one, bringing them one together in one body in himself. There's no more room for any outsiders. Everyone is to be called in. You know, the mystery that Paul preached has been repeated again and again through history. Some of you might be familiar with the story of, um, his name's Johann Dober and uh, David Neichmann. There were two Moravians in 1732, and they felt convicted, called by God, to go and take the gospel to the slaves in the West Indies. As they approached the slave trader, they were forbidden. They said, you know you can't come in. You can't do it. I won't allow you. And yet they were so committed to what Jesus was calling them to do that they sold themselves into slavery so that they might have an opportunity to go into these uh, plantations or join the slaves. So they gave away their freedom so that they might do what Christ had compelled them to do. And supposedly the words that they said as they left in the boat, as slaves now, they said... May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You see, Christ wanted the, the, the people of the West Indies as much as he wanted a free man, David Neichmann and Johann Nober, to be part of his kingdom, to be part of his church. And these two men recognized that. And God gave them a compassion and a desire to see that fulfilled. And so they sold it themselves so they might reach these people for the love of Christ. When you think about our former way of life, as I was thinking on it the other day, and you know, I, I imagined myself, I was really a corpse then, and an undertaker at best. <laughs> Everything that I was and was about was, had the stench of death on it. I've now been taken into a kingdom where I'm now somebody who's alive. 
but I also have the role and the purpose of a lifesaver. You know, and the purposes of a lifeguard is to patrol the pools, not just look out for certain types of people, but for anybody and everybody who needs it. And that is what we are called into as part of this great mystery that is the church. Drawn together, everybody and everything, under Christ. You know, Paul and these two Moravians, and even I am beginning to realize that we are called into a mystery, a great mystery, something far greater than ourselves. I'm beginning to understand that, that we and ourselves are part of something bigger. We are part of the mystery of Christ. You know, no ordinary person by their own compulsion would have done or gone or suffered what Paul had suffered. Or even have done what the Neichmann had done and his friend had done. They were drawn, they were compelled by this great mystery of Christ. And for Paul, that was to see both Jew and Gentile brought together in one body. I need to ask you this morning, do you feel that sense of hopeless abandonment to Christ? Are you, are you willing to overcome your anxieties or your fears or your worries and just let yourself go <laughs> and just to be, allow Christ to take hold of the whole person that you are and dare to consider that there's more of this universe than just me. That God is calling me into something far bigger than just my own personal salvation. God is calling me into a family, a community, a whole people. Paul knew that he was for rescuing Gentiles. That's what Jesus had given him the commission for. Bringing them into the kingdom of God. You know, and it's funny when you think about it that God chose a man like Paul. You know, I've heard somebody say, you know, would it have been better or easier if he'd chosen somebody like Peter? You know, Peter was from the region of uh, Nazareth, of, of Galilee. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. He would have been familiar with Gentiles. He might have been seen some influence of their kind of Gentile ways. But he didn't choose Peter. He chose Paul. And I think that was deliberate. Somebody who formerly would have been so opposed to the idea of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. <laughs> In one sense, God's got a wonderful sense of humor, hasn't he? <laughs> but it's a tremendous act of God's grace and his mystery in action that they appointed a man such as Paul. And I'm so glad that he did choose Paul. Because that in itself is a, an assurance to me that this must be true. There is a place for the Gentiles. Because it is a Jewish man who is a Jew of, old, a Jew of Jews. He was brilliant. As a Jewish scholar, he sat under the, 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 the teaching of Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish scholars of his time. He was a Benjamite. He was, a, you know, he ticked every box. As a Jew, who were the Gentiles to him? He didn't have anything. Why? 
Why on earth would a man like Paul want anything to do with this? But God changed his heart and gave him a commission. I'm sending you, Paul. You of all people. And you see that mystery taking shape and form in the person of Paul himself. That it is Paul who is our champion. He was our first champion. It's amazing, isn't it? There's somebody who would have formerly been our enemy. Is the only one who brings us the message of salvation. That's what God does. That's what God does. And it goes beyond just uh, Jew and Gentile. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 28, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, but it doesn't stop there. He says, neither slave nor free, neither female or male, for you are all one in Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. Every uh, difficulty, every frustration in life is resolved in the person of Jesus Christ. When we all come together and submit to his rule and reign. What a, what a wonderful world it would be, wouldn't it? Sounds like you for a song. <laughs> what a wonderful world. <laughs> But that's what Jesus is aiming for. You know, in one sense, his work was finished on the cross, but the, the outworking of that is still to be complete, and it will be consummated when he comes back. But the church has an ongoing purpose and mission. Drawn all together under Christ and together. You know, the story of the prodigal son is a beautiful illustration we often think of it just with regards, when we read it, we terms to our own, again, our personal salvation. But it's a greater story than that. It was a story that was originally coined for the, the Jewish um, audience that Jesus had in front of him. And he was really telling the story to the older brother. When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, and we're so familiar with it, and we all think of the, the prodigal son now, the wayward one who went off and lived the party life and came back. We all know what happened. And that he was loved and celebrated by the Father, but there was somebody at the party who wasn't there, who should have been there. And it was the older brother. He was disgruntled. He was annoyed. He didn't want to go in. He said, well, 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 why, why are you welcoming him back? What about all the things I've done? Remember, I worked. I never went off anywhere. Why are you celebrating him? No, I'm in a huff. I'm, I'm, I'm not coming in. That was an appeal to the Jewish people. Saying, I'm, 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 I'm preparing a space here for more. And whether you like it or not, I'm going to welcome them in. I want you to be the same. Together. You know, and that has sadly been the Jewish mindset for large in part. There are still many Jews today who are still coming to Christ. The fulfillment of all the promises. And it's a wonderful thing. You know, I love to see um, 
Jewish testimonies of people coming to Jesus. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's wonderful for when you see the two coming together. That is the mystery of Christ unfolding before our eyes. This is a mystery that you and I are all part of, that we're all called to be part of. And this is another dimension to the cross of Christ as well. Normally we tend to think in terms of individual salvation, that Jesus died for me, for me, yes, just me. Well, yes, he did. He did die for me. But he died for that person that doesn't know yet. He called me not into a singular relationship with God, but a communal relationship with God. God isn't intended to be a one-parent family. He wants all his children together. And we have a role and a responsibility in that as well. You know, God has said himself right at the very beginning, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, that goes way beyond the confines of human marriage. That's a statement on the nature of humankind. We were created for community. Whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, beside the point, ultimately we were created to live in community with one another with one another and with God. And that's what God is calling us all back to. Everyone redeemed and together, loving together, loving together under the grace and the kindness of Christ. You know, it's a bit like when we have all the family together and there's about a full house at the moment. <laughs> but it is wonderful. There's a wonderfulness of it. You know, even just my immediate family, when me and Jude are together and with the kids, there's a, a dimension to it that it, it, it's inexplainable. If one of them is missing, yeah, we can still have a good time. If one of them is off playing football or off doing something else or whatever, we're still a family unit, but there's that sense of there's somebody missing. And when they're all there together, there's a, a dynamic to it. It's just wonderful. And that is in the heart of God as well. When he wants all his children coming together, regardless how far flung they are, he wants them back. And it wouldn't be much of a family who, if they all were sitting at home and saying, well, I don't know where he is. Can you give a job? <laughs> That's not what family is, is it? You know, Martin Luther and Calvin gave quite a strong argument for this, and I, I, I needed to read it to you. Let me just say, first of all, you know, when we have the Spirit of God in us, yes, we reflect the likeness of Christ in our person. But there's something mystical and marvelous that happens when we come together as a community. There is a greater reflection of Christ happening. Because it's not just the, the nature of Christ that uh, you're carrying it in you, but it's the nature of Christ being carried in each and every one of us, being reflected and seen. 
We see aspects of grace being reflected in somebody that we didn't see uh, in somebody who was shown uh, an act of uh, forgiveness or, or, or kindness or wisdom. When we come together as a church, we're seeing the, the, the reflections of Christ more and more, twofold, twentyfold. I don't know how many of us are here this morning, but so many more fold than when we operate individually. Jesus, as we gather here together, is becoming more tangible in his presence because of his presence in each one of us. But there's a communal presence of Jesus, even more so. And this is what um, Luther and, and Calvin were trying to stress. Let me read it to you. It says, Membership in a confessing body is fundamental to the faithful Christian life. Failure to do so defies the explicit warning not to forsake our assembling together. His understanding of this prompted Martin Luther to say, apart from the church, salvation is impossible. Not that the church provides salvation, God does. But because the saved one can't fulfill what it means to be a Christian apart from the church, membership becomes the indispensable mark of salvation. And Calvin went on to say it even stronger. He said, So highly does the Lord esteem the communion of his church that he considers everyone a traitor and an apostate from religion who perversely withdraws himself from any Christian society which prevails the true ministry of the word and sacraments. The finished work of Christ is not your personal salvation. It is your personal salvation and your membership of the body of Christ. That is what we were created to be, part of a body, one body, in and in Christ. It's a wonderful mystery to be part of. You know, it's when we fail to recognize our part and our joining in that mystery, that's when problems begin to erupt and happen in the church. That's when you begin to see disunity creeping to the surface. Complacency, backsliding, vindictive gossiping, cliques forming, grumbles and moaning and whinging. <laughs> because we fail to recognize that we are joined together in a supernatural way. The unit of the church is Jesus' prize. Your salvation wasn't just meant for your own personal good. It was actually meant for a universal purpose, as a witness, in fact, to the whole cosmos. Do you recognize the necessity of you being here, of being part of a body? Has it occurred to you before that when we come together as a church, it's not just a tradition, it's not just so I can get a free cup of coffee in the morning. There is something wonderful. There is a something that is it's an unction of the Spirit to draw us together like this. Why on earth would we come on a wet, horrible Sunday morning when we could have been lying in our bed? <laughs> when we could have been doing something else? There's an unction of the Spirit at work that draws us together for a purpose. And for a purpose, the greater than we realize. And it speaks 
to the heavens. You know, I said earlier we are the Jesus' life work. When you use that term, you often think of a, a piece of art or a masterpiece or an achievement. And in many ways, that's what the church is. It is Jesus' life work. As we'd read a, previous, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, we, we are his handiwork. And he made us for a purpose, in a sense, to show us off. To show us off to the, the heavenly powers. Do you remember in the story of, of Job? When it says, all the angels assembled together. And Satan was there as well. And what did God say as soon as they were all there together? He says, have you considered my servant Job? You can't help but think, I certainly can't help but think, that there was a, there was a swell in God's heart as he said that. He was showing Job off. He loved him. He loved him. He, the devotion that Job had for God was a wonderful thing and a precious thing to God. And God actually lifted him up in the heavens and said, look at him. Isn't he wonderful? And we know what Satan's response is. Well, it doesn't really love you. It doesn't really love you. It just loves it because of what you do. And in a sense, Job was almost sense put in trial. It was God was put in trial through and through Job. We said, is this a real thing of a love communion between you and this, this person? And it was. But Job isn't the only one that God has lifted up. Every single one of his servants through the whole testament, he could do it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Isaiah. Remember when he threw out that question, who will go for us? You know, I can just imagine the smile in God's heart when Isaiah put his hand and says, here am I. I will go. Because I'm so transfixed by your presence, I will go to the ends of the earth for you. Do you not think God is moved by that? That he loves to see that in his kids? And even more so when he sees it in his church. Not because of its size. Because of the many reflections of Christ's likeness he sees in it. Being continually being reflected. The image of himself being reflected again and again and again. In so many different ways. So many different facets of it. It's wonderful. And I was thinking about this the other day. Do you, do you know what the difference between a diamond and graphite is? It's the same material as carbon. The wonderful thing is, the only difference is the bonds. A diamond, the bonds, the atomic bonds that hold it together are so tightly constrained together, so tightly knit and bound together, that funny enough, it makes it the strongest and most beautiful object on the planet. And graphite, well, I put it simply, the bonds are weak. That's the difference. Jesus has created the church to be a beautiful, wonderful gem. And it's the centerpiece of his collections, of his works. And he wants all the heavenly host to look on it and be amazed. 
we are that wonderful gem. We might not think it, we might not feel it. We have a tendency to look at ourselves and think, really? Really? Yes. He loves you. And he loves it when you love one another. It reflects him in a way that singularly we cannot do by ourselves. He loves the love that you have for one another. That's what makes you so precious. It's the love that you, the love that you practice when it's difficult. It's a love that you put into practice when you have a prejudice against someone, but you say, you know what, I'm going to go over that. <laughs> I'm going to love you because Christ first loved me and he loves us. There's no place for hate. There's no place for envy. There's no place for prejudice. Love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you. Remember, Jesus' great prayer was that we would be one as he and the Father are one. It can be difficult, but it's not impossible because he is at work in us. In one sense, we should be attracted to one another. Please understand that <laughs> in the right sense. <laughs> attracted to one another. He loved us. Let us love one another. Because it will go beyond us. And it will speak volumes to the wider world. Particularly in an age when, you know, the, the, the church is often harangued and slagged off and complained about for so many things. The first and foremost thing we have is to show them that we love one another. And they will know who we belong to. And there is an as place for them as well. Yeah? Let's stand. Just as the, the band come up to leave and worship, it was just a couple of things I want to highlight. Particularly that whole thing about prejudices or holding people at arm's length. Maybe if this morning, if there's, I don't know, something happening in your life or a relationship or, I don't know, where you know that you're, you're being less than gracious <laughs> or you're not allowing yourself to be what Christ has called you to be, maybe that's something we could pray about this morning. Yeah.